brought to you by CGTN Europe. It was once one of the biggest railway stations in Britain. It's hosted concerts by the Arctic Monkeys, Snow Patrol, Oasis and The Cure. More recently, the TV talent show The X Factor was broadcast live here. But now Manchester's central convention complex, formerly known as the GMEX, is home to one of the biggest temporary field hospitals in the UK. It's a huge achievement, turning the Manchester Central Convention Centre into a fully functioning hospital in just two weeks. I got the call to go to site, didn't know anything about the project, only two weeks before. We walked into the GMEX, which is a massive, great big sort of blank exhibition hall with the army, with the project manager, with um, members of the NHS. And we're pretty much given a, a sort of a verbal brief to say what we need in two weeks time is a fully functioning hospital with somewhere between 750 and 1,000 beds, all fully provided with oxygen to each, to each bed base. Sort of away you go. As the COVID pandemic unfolded, it became clear that providing enough hospital beds to deal with the sick would be the biggest challenge for the UK's National Health Service and for government. The Manchester Nightingale became one of seven temporary facilities set up in a matter of days. Their construction has seen doctors and nurses, designers and engineers working alongside each other and the military, which was drafted in to oversee the entire project. Architect Jed Kusa was site manager at the Manchester Nightingale. And the army kind of basically patrolled around the site, making sure that all the meetings only lasted sort of 30, 40 minutes. Only had sort of three kind of four, four agenda items and the decisions were made really quickly. They kept telling us to think about pulling the big levers. Don't worry about the, the kind of minor detail and make sure that the decisions were made in the right order. Working directly with the armed forces was something he could never have envisaged in his professional life as a hospital architect. But the experience for him has been a game changer. They've got these, you know, this experience of going to sort of Kosovo or Afghanistan or Iraq, and building these things kind of in, you know, in the sand. To build a 750-bed hospital would normally take five years from kind of start to finish. You know, this is a very different thing. It's a different, completely different kind of project. You know, I think that the first first briefing was from a major from the army, who basically kind of made made everybody's mind sort of switch to that sort of approach to get this, to, you know, to, to getting it done really quickly. It is without doubt a spectacular and uh, almost unbelievable feat of work in every sense from its speed of construction in just nine days, as we've heard, to its size and the skills of those who have created it. Prince Charles speaking at the virtual opening of the London Nightingale Hospital on the site of the XL Exhibition Centre in the city's Docklands. As the rollout of emergency beds continued across the UK, standard working practices have been put to one side as collaboration between government Healthcare providers and professional contractors stepped up to meet the huge logistical challenge. 
So things became very much more hands-on and ad hoc, and I think a bit more direct and honest. People were brilliantly open, honest, very direct, great sense of humour. It's made for accelerated results. Christopher Shaw is a London-based hospital architect and chair of the industry group Architects for Health. He wrote the official guidance advising colleagues on how to go about adding 20,000 acute care hospital beds in the UK in less than six weeks. I think one of the impacts of any crisis is that the formal relationships and barriers and and, um, professional boundaries get broken down fairly rapidly because you have to talk across disciplines and across um, tiers of of authority in a quite direct way. So I'd find myself talking to somebody who, you know, later a leading researcher on virology. At the same time, I'll be having a conversation uh, online uh, to, to staff in an emergency department whilst they're working in the emergency department on mobile phones almost. It's this breakdown of traditional boundaries between public and private, as well as different sectors of industry, that has been one of the most striking features of the response to COVID. It's one that's being felt across national borders and in an array of different areas. A NASCAR meeting at a track in Texas earlier this year, just before COVID brought motor racing events across the US to a halt. As the country went into lockdown, the Ford Motor Company, one of the biggest backers of NASCAR, found a new use for the company's equipment. Bill Ford is chief executive. We're working with GE on ventilators. We're also working with 3M uh, for air purifying respirators. And then in-house, we're also doing face shields, trying to produce hundreds of thousands of those a week. N95 masks, uh, we're 3D printing them. The designs of the masks that Ford created came from Prusa Research, which from its base just outside Prague, sells its 3D printers to clients in over 130 countries around the world. Its chief executive is Josef Prusa. There's a saying in Czech, the more hats you have, the more you know. More brains are working on something, the better it is, basically. As the pandemic came to us, to the Czech Republic, we knew that we want to help out. But, you know, we didn't want to do something just so we can say, oh, we helped. We wanted to do something very meaningful. My designer started to do the design from the beginning. And in like a couple hours, we had first few prototypes. And in the meantime, I got in touch with Czech Ministry of Health because we wanted to do it properly. So we, we got that sorted out over like two days few iterations. It was very wonderful to because the doctors we worked with, they never saw 3D printing and they were amazed that we could iterate and in 24 hours bring basically completely new product or completely new design. So on the fourth day we already were giving away I think first a batch of 800 shields. With EU certification in place, Prusa published its unique mask design free on the internet. Now the number of downloads has outstripped sales of traditional PPE equipment in many parts of the world, a response that's been overwhelming for those involved. Just five days after we published it, Ford Motor Company, they printed some of the shields and they were showing it on the on the national television. <laughs> Others, Mercedes-Benz, Skoda Auto, we had some things which were very, I would say, viral in the in the 3D printing community. 
But I, in my wildest dreams, I would never, never expect that we will basically start a movement. Just showing people that it can be done makes a huge difference. So I'm very proud of that. Another firm that had no prior experience of the health sector before COVID, but has nonetheless taken advantage of the Prusa mask, is based in one of Europe's worst COVID black spots. I think because the, the geometry of this uh, object is quite uh, simple, we could do this redesigning process relatively uh, fast. So we're, we're used to just start printing one chair and just finish that chair. And in here we had to program jumping from one object to another as much as we can. Before the pandemic struck, Nagami Design near Madrid used its state-of-the-art robotic 3D printers to make trendy office furniture and art installations. With the infection rate in Spain spiraling, it switched to producing PPE masks at a rate of one every five minutes, seven times faster than a standard 3D printer. One of the firm's founders is Manuel Jimenez Garcia. We got friends who work in the, in the health sector who were texting, asking if we could do something. April, I mean, April, May uh, were tough. We were working around the clock. We had four robots, so we had all those robots simultaneously printing as many facials as we, as we could. And uh, we got volunteers also to help us assembling them. So we basically started to organize with a small group of uh, makers. And we started from, from Spain and then we got more, more volunteers who could uh, travel to other provinces, who could, for example, travel to Madrid, like Avila. So we were just packing a few hundreds <laughs> of those vessels in a car and just taking them to Madrid. Or if it's uh, for farther destinations, uh, we would just ship. And the experience of collaborating across sectors this way has taken Nagami in a new and unexpected direction. I think the way we're thinking about design and manufacturing is rapid changing with this crisis. And I, I actually do think that the very new and exciting opportunities and different models will emerge from this that we perhaps wouldn't have considered before. Right now, we are reconsidering our design methods for, for furniture, uh, creating new types of objects that were not as necessary before, right? But it's not all about PPE and the medical response. Already, it's clear that the legacy of COVID is set to remain with us long after the virus is finally brought under control. This will mean new ways of working and for employers, new ways of managing staff. Often in areas of industry, hit worst by the outbreak. economically untenable the way they're trying to manage these sites currently. Uh, I mean some people in England are quoting it down to about 20% of normal capacity. Um, now that's normal people on site but you're seeing cost of infrastructure so that's just not sustainable. Jackie McLaughlin is Chief Executive of ReactTech, an Edinburgh-based producer of tracking devices for the construction and heavy industry sector. Until early this year, the firm specialised in wearable tech that caps the amount of time that workers spend using power tools, thus protecting them from injuries like vibration white finger. 
Now, with projects across the UK at a standstill and firms losing money fast, it's forced a rethink of what their devices can do. We had been looking at um, Bluetooth technology as a means of determining distance. And when we were speaking to our clients, we started to get this feedback about maintaining social distance is a much bigger challenge than people expect. You know, when, when you can be in a very rigid situation, such as queuing for the supermarket, that we're all getting quite used to, you can quite readily, easily manage that separation of individuals. But when you come to a busy work environment, a lot of our clients work outdoors. There are therefore, you don't have the same restrictions as easily put in place. That maintaining social distance was a real challenge to them. So we, we took those two things together, that challenge and our ability to detect distance. And that's what, what started us on this journey. ReactTech has now upgraded its devices to allow workers to maintain social distancing while on busy construction sites. Jackie McLaughlin says that this too has led to new possibilities for the future. There are certainly very specialised industries where contact tracing was an ask before the pandemic came about. Um, and I think that's, that's a growing uh, interest for a number of organisations because it's, it's not just about you know, the negative perceptions about knowing where your people are. It's knowing where your people are so if there's dangers you can help them and knowing where your people are so you're operating as efficiently as you possibly can. That, that has a broad application. This shift in a company's business model, described as a pivot, is something that's seeing a rapid spread in the post-COVID world. For some firms, it will mean a long-term change in direction. Here's Jane Kader of the Centre for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the London Business School. My definition of a, of a pivot would be where the business obviously looks internally at its uh, current um, operations and, and decides that that's no longer viable or it may be viable but not as profitable as it could be. Because of course a business can pivot at any time. I mean now is the time where we've seen more pivots than previously uh, experienced because obviously extreme trading conditions and, and, and economic conditions, the pivot would result at any time by the business looking internally, identifying another opportunity which they may want to take advantage of, which is either you know, more viable for them, a better use of resource, and uh, enables them to uh, effectively grab you know, lower hanging fruit than would otherwise be available in, in you know, ordinary times. All the businesses here say the experience of collaboration and cooperation in the COVID world has been something that they will take with them throughout their working lives giving them unique insight into how different sectors can work together to meet unexpected challenges. But for all, recent success has been a double-edged sword. Say it is a bittersweet experience. I'm, of course, extremely proud that we've, we've been able to do this. But on the other hand, it is a little bit <laughs> sour experience from the point why should companies like us, who has nothing to do with healthcare, why, why should we have to save the supplier chain or the uh, stockpiles of the countries? The broader picture for me is, is about the, the benefits of what we describe as the connected worker and using technology to bring you information about what's happening to your employees. 
A lot of this technology had been in place at the start of the pandemic rather than now. There might have been a lot better ability to control this disease than has been evidenced. On one hand, I have learned that when we are when we are all united with a common goal, we are capable of working together at a massive level, and that has been very beautiful to to see. And not as positive surprise has been seen some of these processes being stopped due to like bureaucracy and regulations and there have been different views on this topic that i think are opening up big big discussions for for the future that was the great collaboration the second in cgtn's podcast series notes on a pandemic i'm louise greenwood join us next time for the office of the future when we'll be looking at how the COVID outbreak is changing the places where we work.